All right, it's good to be together. Let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 14, and we'll be in verse 13. Allow me to say what I shared in the first service, because I think it's worth trying to give a similar experience. So new members making vows is beautiful when God calls people into the body. AJ uh, administered his first ever baptism as an ordained pastor, which was super cool. And what's special to me about that is AJ and Krista started attending Christ Community when they were in college. And then, of course, AJ went up through his internship here, his seminary training. And so I, I wrote a note to myself and shared it with the first service that it is a privilege to be a church of first things and forever shared experiences. I mean that sincerely. Like, to have a minister of the gospel who, who, who among a church family that he and his wife have been a part of through the whole calling of their ministry to administer his first baptism, it's a, that's a first, and we all share all these firsts, right? Sometimes it's, it's in the rejoicing category, sometimes it's sorrows, but we walk through those first things together. But then the scriptures are telling us that what we anticipate in the future is forever shared experiences, forever, with no end. And I think a little bit that's hinted in this text, so I just praise God for that. Well, I want to date myself here, but as an introduction to this text, I'll go ahead and do it again. I did it this morning. Um, do you, any of you remember the game show Super Millionaire? Much of our church is like, what's a game show? Uh, Super Millionaire. It was 2003, I think, because I was looking at my notes, and I called in and tried to be a contestant on Super Millionaire. Anybody ever called in to try to be a contestant on something, you know, like Jeopardy? I'm not smart enough for that, but I did. I called in to try to be a contestant, and when you see people in a game show on television, they have gone through some serious hoops to get there. And so for Super Millionaire, they called it Fast Finger Trivia. So you would call in, and over the phone, a computer would read out a question, and they would give you four answers, and they would say, on your touch-tone phone... Place in order from the earliest to the latest. And kids, a touch-tone phone is like the old boop, 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 right? Right? So there would be five, maybe ten questions, and only those who got all the questions right and had the fastest fingers had the chance to go for it all. I made it to question two, which means I only got question one right. And it, it just revealed to me, I think order questions are, are very difficult. I was a history major in college, and I like historical facts. But placing things in order is a challenge. So, for example, place in order from earliest to latest these four movies. Go with fast fingers. Or these four presidents. Or these four states that joined the union. That was probably my second question that I failed. Fast fingers place in order. Here's why I bring that up. I think when we look at a familiar story, again, like what we'll look at this morning, the feeding of the 5,000, it does us well to say, can we place in order the things that we see Jesus do here? Like, we, we, know, we know what he does. He, he, he miraculously feeds a crowd on the, on the seashore there, but what order of things are we given in the Bible that our Lord does, and why does that matter? And so that's what we're going to do this morning. So as you go ahead and stand with me, and as you do, let me just reference that the sermon title this morning is a little bit of a play on words, the order for dinner. I do not mean like menu items, right? I mean like the order of things that Jesus does to bring about this dinner that day on that shore for that crowd of people. And it may be of note, if you were here last week, 
that we should consider just how different the menu is at this simple dinner than the debaucherous, just awful dinner for the birthday of John the Baptist that we looked at last week. The menu was quite different. So let's hear God's word read. This is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. This is the word of God. Father, would you help us to hear your word? Would you convince us of who Jesus is as we look at the order of things that he does? Would you help us to apply them in our own life by your Spirit's work in us? I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. So when we study Scripture, I think it is a, a valuable thing to do to study the order of how God works. All right, so I'm not going to jump in the text first. I want, to, I want to do some theology first. Maybe you're familiar with this, but across history and even in the New Testament, we see the apostles and then we see church theologians who say, who acts first when it comes to our salvation? And, and what does God do first? And, and what does God do second and third so we understand the actions of God in his work of both creation and redemption? Well, the apostle Paul gives us sort of a condensed order of salvation. And what the old reformers would call it is the ordo salutis, if you've heard that. That's Latin for the order of salvation. And Paul gives it to us in Romans 8. In summary form, he says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So Paul strings things together, realities that the scriptures teach systematic doctrinal things and says this is kind of the order they go in. And as theologians have put together the order of salutis, they've beefed it up a little bit as we look at all of scripture. And so you could say that the saving work of God, if we put it in an order, it begins with calling and that leads to regeneration. God changes the heart. Hearts that have experienced his regeneration, they experience God's justification. Those whom God justifies experience his adoption. And those whom he's justified and adopted, they then, by the Spirit's help, go on a lifetime journey of sanctification. And those who are being made holy and sanctified, God promises they will experience his preservation. And those whom he preserved will know him in their glorification. So I just kind of gave a bunch of big things. But I, I say that to you because it's very valuable when we study God's word to say, who does what first? It's always God, but what things does God do? In fact, when we did our deacon and elder training, one of the training times I spent with these men were about the order salutis. Do, 
Do we know these things? Do we believe the scriptures teach them in this order? And so I'm going to take that same concept and look into this text and say, okay, if Jesus is the Son of God, who is the revealed wisdom of God and power of God in the flesh, then when we see a scene like this, what does he do first? What does he do second? And what can we learn about who God is and how he works? So I think I'm trying to show you that theologically it's something we should always be thinking, but practically it can help us read a text in the Gospels, okay? So look in verse 13. When Jesus heard this, we read that he withdrew to a desolate place. If you were with us last week, we said, well, what is it that Jesus heard that made him withdraw? And there's, there's one of two options from the early part of Matthew 14. Either Jesus heard that Herod was angry, fixated, afraid of him, and thought that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. So Jesus withdrew to ensure that he didn't have a collision with Herod. In fact, Jesus has done the same thing with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12. He doesn't want to have a collision with the Pharisees. He's not ready for that confrontation, so he withdraws to a place to be away from them. Well, maybe that's what he does here. He withdraws so as to not be unsafe or have a collision with Herod. Another reason, though, could be that Jesus has just heard that John the Baptist died. That's what's there in verse 12. And he withdraws because he's grieving. He understands the calling that he has and he's sorrowing, right? So it's one of those two things. I, I lean toward he's heard about Herod and he's aware that Herod is probably not afraid to try to kill John twice, if you know what I mean. And the reason I lean that way is because the whole section about John's death is a flashback and so Jesus would have heard about that earlier. But you may not be aware, this is the only miracle in all the Bibles that's in all four Gospels. Did you know that? That's not the resurrection. And so I, I want to piece some of the story together with the other Gospels to say, how do we understand this? And Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel gives another reason why Jesus might have withdrawn. In fact, those two Gospels say that just before this, Jesus sent his 12 apostles out and gave them authority to cast out demons, to heal, and to proclaim the Gospel. And the disciples have just come back to him in Mark chapter 6, and they're absolutely pumped. They're kind of like the Powell's are. When everybody's excited about something, they come back, and maybe one of us parents weren't there. Like, what happened? And the way Mark chapter 6, verse 30 says it, it says, and all the disciples announced what had happened. You can just see the announcement, just lobbying their announcement back and forth. Oh, yeah, oh, and interrupting each other with excitement. And Mark 6.31 says they were so excited they didn't even eat, eat any food. They just want to talk to Jesus about it. And it's at that point that Jesus says, hey, guys, let's, let's go away. Like, calm down. Let's go away and let's talk about what you've experienced. Let's talk about the power of my kingdom. And so that may be another reason that they withdraw because they were called to rest with Christ as participants in his kingdom. But for these multiple reasons, we read that Jesus and his disciples, they end up across the sea. They go to this desolate place. Matthew doesn't tell us where this place is. The Gospel of Luke says it's a place called Bethsaida, which would be on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it indeed was a desolate place. Only small hamlets or villages would be there. And as they get near the shore, they look out, and there's people running and walking on foot. In fact, I find it to be an odd detail that almost all the Gospels emphasize the crowd was coming on foot. I picture children, families, you know. I remember we would take the kids to the Chicago Harbor when we lived on the north side of Chicago. I mean, children are just waving at the boat, and every, everybody's in a fervor. And, and I think it matters they would come on foot, probably running, because when Jesus got in the boat to go across the sea to this place, 
If people came on foot, they would have had to cruise north about two miles to find a ford to cross the Jordan River to come back and see Jesus on the shore. So you have this earnestness, this urgency. John's gospel says the crowd that gathered after he fed the 5,000, they tried to take him by force to make him king. So just imagine the fervor of the crowd. And when Jesus looks out and Jesus sees the people, here's what we see his first action or his first feeling is. He saw the crowd and he had compassion. As I, as I think about this, I'm like, well, wait a minute. What did he actually see? Like, could he see people that had physical maladies that he needed to rescue them from? Like, what did he see? I, I don't think it's that at all. I think it's the fact of the crowd coming on foot is, is something that just pulls compassion out of him because he understands that they're aimless. Crowds are often aimless and wandering, aren't they? Have you ever been in a crowd and maybe you're watching one thing? It could be at, a, at, at the zoo or at a, at a festival or something and the crowd's watching this and then the crowd all goes over here and you have people that are further back in the crowd like, what are we watching? Like, what are, what, what, why did we come over here? And then the crowd moves like, what are we watching now? Often people in a crowd, they don't care what they're watching or seeing. They're just in the crowd. And they just go. Like the birds you see flying in the air, like, man, they just are sticking together. Who's leading the turns here? The crowd ends up there. And Jesus, he has immediate compassion. I want you to think about this with me. I'm going to tell you something that hopefully you feel with me. But it's an honest reflection. I feel comforted by reading this in a few commentaries this week. But shouldn't we be tired of the crowd by now if we're reading the Gospel of Matthew slowly? Like, isn't, I'm tired of the crowd. Jesus has got to be annoyed at this point. Right? I mean, I don't know about you. I go home. I love the crowded environments in our wonky building here. But yeah, you go home and it's like, oh, just to rest on a Lord's Day. I'm an overly stimulated extrovert or I'm a, I'm a called out of my shell introvert, whatever you may be. But just to go and be by oneself after being with a crowd for hours is nice and restful. And yet you think of Jesus. He never got a break from the crowd. I mean, he would go places and wherever he went, it wasn't just people that wanted to hear him. It was opponents who were against him. And then you say, well, there were times in which he intentionally spoke to a crowd inside of a synagogue or he would teach inside of a, uh, inside of a house. And remember, they lowered the paralytic down inside of a house. But then even the times he would go into a house and not let the crowd come in with him. Only the two blind men he was going to heal, for example. Or Jairus and his family before he raised his daughter. But the minute Jesus would walk out of a private house, what was there waiting for him? The crowd. He must be exhausted in his humanity. I think it's worthy to think of it that way. The crowd has done nothing for him. They've just demanded much of him, we might say. In fact, if anything, the crowd has just caused really awkward and creative views to abound as to who Jesus actually is, like John the Baptist raised from the dead. I think Jesus had a right to be tired. He had a right to be tired of them. But I say that because I'm a sinner, and Jesus was not. And if we think about Jesus, we think, gosh, he came on a mission from the Father to pour himself out. And so when he saw those for whom he was called to pour himself out, he wasn't annoyed. He couldn't have been in his sin. In fact, we read in the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, he saw sheep without a shepherd. That's what he saw on that shore. He saw people who just followed wherever the crowd took them, and they were unprotected from the greatest threats against them. They were unsure of what they should actually be seeking. People in a crowd go wherever the crowd goes. 
Let's think not of a physical crowd, but go ahead and think about our culture for right now. How, how sad is it when we see people following the ideologies of the cultural crowd and not thinking twice about what it is the crowd is actually telling them they need to believe? Not thinking twice. Parents that are not discipling their children at home as their children are wrestling through things with regard to any number of things, gender, the role of the state, the role of the church, how things of God and his sovereignty map with sin and injustice in our world, like no conversations happening. And so children or those tangentially connected to the church are just following the crowd, not thinking one bit about if we really believe what the crowd is saying, where does this lead? Jesus looked at the crowd and he saw a crowd of people who needed to be led like sheep need to be led, fed like sheep need to be fed, protected like sheep need to be protected from a shepherd who knows them. And so he sees the crowd and he knows their fears. He knows their curiosities. He knows their doubts. He knows their sin. He knows their, their threats. Maybe their threats are the Pharisees or maybe their threats Herod and the debauchery that, that just keeps appealing to them. Maybe their threats are their circumstances. He knows. But compassion is his first response. So let me pause here. Let me say this. If you, by God's Spirit, End up in a crowd on a Lord's Day to worship. I'm thankful that we're in this small crowd. But if you keep coming back because you want to understand more about who Jesus is, want to understand more about his kingdom, more about his promises, more about his character, then I think it's safe for us to say, you know what that means? You're an object of God's compassion. And I think we forget that oftentimes. If you're a Christian and you've come to know Christ and you keep wanting to know him more, then listen, whenever you feel tired and you feel burdened and you feel like no one sees you, guess what? You're an object of compassion. Or when you have pain bottled up inside and you want to know why things aren't being resolved or wondering if they'll be resolved, you're an object of compassion. When you're angry, And you look at the things in our world or you look at the things in your own life and you're angry and you demand a fix and you want to know why God hasn't fixed it or you're not sure how you're supposed to be a part of the solution, guess what? You're an object of God's compassion in Christ. When you need forgiveness because you keep on sinning and that addiction, which you don't want to call an addiction, is actually an addiction where you just keep going back to the same struggle and sin and you just wonder if you're ever going to find power to be freed from it, And you say, how is this going to work? Guess what? If you turn to God in Jesus and you want to know how he can rescue you, you are an object of his compassion. We don't want to miss this. And I'll say more about the implications if we miss it. But the first order of Christ's actions here is his compassion. Verse 13, we keep going. He had compassion on them and he healed their sick. So next in order, we have the healing. And I put it in parentheses in your outline. And the teaching of Jesus. Matthew says he healed, but in Mark and in Luke, we read something else. Mark says this, Jesus had compassion on them and he began to teach many things. And then Luke merges the teaching and the healing. Luke says he began to speak the things of the kingdom and to cure those who needed to be healed. So what we have here is this picture of out of compassion, the works and the word of Jesus intersected those who were there. Works as in healing, word as in teaching. Now, I'm going to keep emphasizing the importance of compassion first, but please track with me here. Why is it critical that we understand that compassion precedes miracles of healing and that compassion precedes teaching with authority? 
What happens if we get the cart before the horse and we get it backwards? And I'll try to say this clearly and also carefully, but let's think about what's happened when the world looks in at the church and, and, and starts to think that God and the church are most about delivering people from their felt needs. What God really cares about is that you, you're healed of what you're sick from or whatever and that you get more of what you want and that, and that your wants are met. What happens when the world thinks that Jesus is mostly about healing and providing for our wants or our needs? Well, what happens is, is we skip right over the fact that Jesus, when he had needs, wasn't rescued in his incarnation, was he? He suffered and died. Why? Because of God's compassion to save sinners who in a world of sin can't save themselves. And so we consider how churches have fallen so prey to teaching what I'll just call the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is God will heal you if just believe in him. Or God will give you more. Just keep wanting more and praying to him to give it. And that's not the gospel at all. It's, it's stupid dangerous. It's not biblical. And so we think of the fact that God sometimes does ordain suffering, doesn't he? In your life, I've talked to some of you, he has chosen not to heal. Sometimes he does heal through natural means and sometimes through supernatural means to him be the glory. But whether he chooses to heal in this time or not heal, or whether he chooses to provide in this time or provide in a future time or not provide for all of our needs, the ones we want met, until the day when he is reigning on this earth and we have no more need, through it all, what is the most important thing in the middle? When we cry out to him, he's compassionate for us as we cry out to him. We can't miss that order of things. Or we could go further and say, well, what happens? If the church becomes known as a place that really wants to just teach the world and teach one another the doctrines of God, teach the law of God and demand that people repent and turn, but we don't at first also say, because those who repent, there's access to and mercy and grace from the God of all compassion. If we miss that part, we run the risk of being a self-righteous church, of being angry, of being cultural haranguers but not gospel offerers? What does it look like for us to be both? To say God sent his law, there is a design, there is a demand, and if we don't walk according to it, we are worthy of his wrath. But in his compassion, he revealed himself to his people. In his compassion, he's given a design for the world that works better than those who are rejecting him. This is the order the scriptures have. I mean, think of Exodus chapter 3, right? God's people, they are oppressed by Pharaoh? And what do we read in Exodus 3? The Lord said, I have seen my people's affliction. Like, I know what Pharaoh's doing to you. And I've heard your cry, and I have come down to deliver you. The deliverance, because of the compassion, precedes even the great miracles of the plagues, even the great miracles of crossing the Red Sea. You could say the compassion and the rescue of God precedes even the law being given at Sinai. We can't miss that compassion is the first order of God. It precedes the miracles of healing and the, wor the word. So we go forward and we say, okay, we understand compassion is first. We understand healing and teaching second. So now we're ready to talk about the provision from God, the food, the meal. Well, there's one other thing that we can easily miss that happens next. I think it's the testing of Jesus, which is bad grammar, I know. I could have said the testing of the disciples, but then it wouldn't sound the same. 
Because it's actually Jesus testing his disciples. I'm convinced of that. I don't think I realized the importance of it prior to this week of study. I'm very familiar with this story. Maybe you are as well. Verse 14, when evening came, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is over. Translation, we're tired and they're hangry. Right? Send the crowds away to go to the village and buy food. I think that's a compassionate consideration by the disciples. They weren't just thinking of themselves. They did say send them away, though, so maybe they were like, can we end this tonight? It's pretty late, Jesus. Oh, man, he just restarted out his introduction after his conclusion. Come on, pastor, right? It's just going on and on, and they know what time of day it is. And what shocks me is verse 15. Jesus says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. <laughs> what do you mean? You, you, you want us to give them something to eat? I mean, you... This is the moment where I, I just expect Peter to say something stupid. But he doesn't. In fact, in the other Gospels, in John 6, it's Andrew and Philip that speak up. And they say, Jesus, 200 denarii would not be enough to give them each just a little bit. The Gospel of Mark says, Jesus, are we supposed to go into the villages and buy 200 denarii worth of food? Do you know how much money that is? That's one person's wages, an average wage, for eight months worth of of income. One commentary I read said, we're talking like 2,500 loaves of bread could be bought with that. They're in a desolate region with tiny hamlets at best. Where do you find this food? How is that even possible? And so the disciples are understandably swept away. This can't happen. What are we supposed to do? But I think it should give us pause that not one disciple looks at Jesus and says, you do it. I want you to do it. Jesus, we saw you calm the sea. Jesus, we saw you raise a girl who was dead. Jesus, you healed the blind men. You're the son of David. This is what you do. And not one disciple looked at him and said, take that rock. Remember, Satan knew you could do it. You do it. Let me ask you something. When's the last time? that you were in a predicament and you just looked to God in desperate prayer and you said, you do it. I can't hold it all together. I can't provide for this, that, or the other. I can't make that person forgive me. You do it. I can't change the culture around me. You do it. We want to participate with you in it, but you have to do it. I think that testing of Jesus is incredibly important. And that leads us into the provision So the disciples, they do find some scraps and they pull them together and they say, Jesus, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And I love it. It's out on the the little sign that Sharon does for you. His next words are, bring them to me. It reminds me of like times when my kids are flipping out because something's super complicated and difficult and I'm not near as compassionate as Jesus. But you know that tone of a parent? We're like, bring it to me. Like I will open that jar of whatever it is. Like don't lose everything. It's okay. Bring it to me. And Jesus has that same tone here. Bring them to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down. The Gospel of John said he divides them up in groups of 50 and hundreds. He breaks the bread, speaks a blessing, looks up to his father, and he begins handing it to his disciples who distribute them. And we read that everyone ate 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And we read then that those who ate were 5,000 men besides women and children. Again, I think one of the reasons that men is referenced is not just because of counting methodology, which would be common there, but 
Again, John's gospel says that there were a bunch of men there that were ready to take him by force to make him their king. But you can do the research. Is this 10,000 people? Is it 20,000 people? It is a very large crowd, and Jesus magnificently provides something out of nothing. Now, maybe you have read more theology and more historical theology than others. I don't know. But 19th century liberalism just has worked so hard, worked so hard to try to find a naturalistic explanation to this. Right? I mean, one of the explanations was there was a cave nearby that it just happened to be the cave that the villages around kept their food. And the disciples found it. Can you believe it? And they just started distributing the food from the cave. That's how this happened. Or some say it's a moral and ethical miracle. In other words, the disciples found some food. Of course, it was a cute little boy. It was the dirtiest one with the most tears on his face. And he handed his lunch to them. And as soon as he handed his lunch to them, the rest of the people in the crowd realized how beautiful that was that he was sharing. And they all pulled out of their tunic the lunch that they also brought. And they began sharing. And it just kept going. And it was a miracle that everybody cared so much about their neighbor they would share. That's, that's bogus. There's no naturalistic explanation to this. Jesus is the Son of God who came to bring the, heaven, the kingdom of heaven down to earth. And he takes nothing and makes it into a feast. It is glorious, the provision of Jesus as God in the flesh. And if we look in verse 20, it's not as if he barely provided enough to get by. Listen to this. They all ate and were satisfied. Maybe your translation says they all ate and were fulfilled. The Gospel of John says that everyone ate as much as they wanted, which big family, father stress, like, no, that's not pot. No one ever gets to eat everything they want. That's just too much food. We can't do that, right? When's the last time you were somewhere where everyone ate whatever they wanted? Just picture it. The satisfaction in this crowd. Twelve baskets left over. Let me just say it again from the other. This text is telling us that in Jesus, God provides abundantly out of his compassion. Let me ask you, do you believe that? Some of you, I know you do. I've sat in times of grief with you or we've walked through things that you know are going to take the rest of your life for God to, to prove to you he can do and you know God provides abundantly. But I've also sat with some of you and you don't act like you believe that. And I know some of you have sat with me in times where I wasn't believing that. Do you believe that God in his gospel, out of his compassion, provides abundantly? In fact, what's explicit here, which is so amazing, is in Jesus, God provides out of compassion unto satisfaction right at the very moment where his own disciples declare it's impossible. I think that's why the testing is the, like the, it's the catch moment for me to understand this text anew. He, he makes his disciples declare it's impossible and then he provides. If you are in Christ... Let me ask you, do you believe that it's often God's kindness and his compassion to bring you and to bring me to a place where you stop complaining and I stop complaining? Or we stop planning and stop trying to control? We stop doubting and we begin praying differently and he gets us to the very point where we actually say, it's impossible. It's not possible. You can't take this feeling in my heart and do something good with it. You can't do the things for my children or for the world I live in that I don't see it. 
It's in the moment where his own disciples who've been watching him, who should know him the most, declare it's not possible that he provides the impossibility. So I ask you, when's the last time you were at the very point where you believed it was literally impossible for you to make it emotionally, relationally, spiritually, psychologically, communally, and you saw God do a work in your heart to show you that he is unbounded and he is God. Another way to ask it is, are you there yet? I've sat with people going through hard times and maybe you've done this too. You look at them and say, is this the bottom? Like you keep hitting a new bottom and not repenting and turning and shock of shocks, there's still further to fall. And shock of shocks, there's still further to fall. Are you there yet? Are you at the bottom yet? Will you cry out for mercy, which is going to require repentance and it's going to require faith and you know that when God provides, it can only have been him who did it. Can you think of things in your life where you have been to that place where God has abundantly provided for something you could never have provided? And if you struggle to think of something, I think that's the purpose of our time in the Word for you this morning. Can you think of relationships that God alone can mend? Can you think of addictions that God alone can rescue you from? And if you can't think of anything, I I want to encourage you to pray this week. But the way I'd like to close this morning is, actually, I think there's some things we should all think of that we're going to experience one day, that when we experience it, guess what we will all say? Only God did that. Paul says that if we believe in Jesus, we've been raised with Christ. We fast forward, we think of the day when on the other side of physical death, the church, invisible, are are looking at one another in our resurrected bodies and we're saying, he did that. And if he did that, then our sins really are forgiven. And if if, if he did that, then Jesus really was at the right hand of the Father interceding the whole time when I prayed to him. If he did that, then there's really never going to be anything to repent of again. If he did that, then we never have to try to protect our children or one another again because there's no more sin in the world. And and I think when we get to that day, we are going to say without a shadow of a doubt, I had nothing to do with it. He did the impossible. And then I hope, if we have an eternal memory that goes back into our present lives, we say, oh yeah, It started with his compassion. His compassion from eternity came first when he knew the kind of rescue that we would need. So Christian, I want to call you to believe anew again. And I'm going to give one pragmatic application. I want to ask you to pray to God to have pity on the crowd around you. That we see how we're called to speak into the world around us but have pity on those who are not going to find their satisfaction in where they're looking. Have pity on those who are rejecting the provision of God in Christ. And a little bit like the disciples, ask that God would give us compassionate hearts to see the needs around us, that we would be a part of God abundantly providing for those he's going to call to himself. I want to encourage you to pray for that. Who's the crowd that you've been connected to by God's design that you need to pray that you'd have pity toward? in your interactions with them. Let me pray. Father, nourish us now by this sacrament we're about to partake of. 
where we believe in Jesus and all he came to, set, to do and, and the order in which he did it? Would we act and live as the satisfied ones today by faith who trust in what you've done because of your compassion for us in our sin? Would we believe in your power to conquer sin and death in Jesus our Savior who came in the flesh, who was incarnate God, who can make out of nothing that which provides? Would we trust in you in Christ's name I pray, amen.